Hello and welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, at the age of 24, I was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Since then, I have been on a journey full of challenges, which has led me to ask the question, how do we face up to the challenges in our lives? To help me answer this question, each week I learn from different guests how they faced up to the challenges in their own lives, and perhaps even how they led to opportunities. I hope that by listening you will be better able to face up to the challenges in your lives so you can live your best life today. This week I am joined by Charlotte Roach. Charlotte is one of a kind. Uh, Throughout this conversation I am bowled away by her incredible resilience and uh, understatement through many different events. Uh, very briefly, um, Charlotte uh, was a, a GB runner before making the transition to triathlon and working towards the 2012 Olympics when an accident completely derailed her plans. In true Charlotte style, she didn't let that stop her and we'll find out more later. Um, But then later on in 2014, she took a twist um, and set up Rabble, which is a a company, an organization that makes exercise fun. And it says, stop exercising, start playing. And we will be talking more about that and where the idea for Rabble came from. Uh, Incidentally, whilst doing research for this project, I found that the uh, collective noun for butterflies is a rabble. So you have a parliament of owls and you have a rabble of butterflies. So um, we are going to be hearing about the rabble that Charlotte set up later. But without further ado, uh, Charlotte, it is fantastic to have you here today. Thanks so much for joining. Hey, thanks, Luke. Nice, nice to be here. I was wondering if you could take us back just a little bit to help us get to know kind of Charlotte as she was kind of growing up, you know, prior to university, prior to your working towards the Olympics. Tell, tell us about Charlotte as she was growing up. I guess, I don't know, I guess my, um, my interaction with sport began like very young. I think um, my parents always used to take me to the swimming pool and about age three, I asked for swimming lessons for my birthday. And I think wow. this led me on a on a path which um, this led me to structured sport. Basically, um, I went through all the swimming badges like one by one, pretty much finished the whole swimming program by the age of about nine, and then entered a swimming club um, and ended up in structured training from very early age, from like seven, eight. Um, I was training multiple times a week in the swimming pool, um, and like even even that, I think was was challenging at points I think swimming is quite a solitary sport you don't really talk to anyone most of the time um a bit difficult underwater yeah exactly exactly um and I moved swimming clubs a few times which kind of you know shook my my confidence in my little world that I was in with my understanding of how it worked um and then um I guess a lot of my world was shifted at the age of about nine. Um, my dad left and got a new job in the Northwest at the time I was based in Derby in the Midlands. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, we ended up following about a year later. So, um, I had to move school, um, changed, uh, change obviously swimming club as well. Um, 
and was thrown from like an, a very like normal inner city school to this like tiny village school which had like there was like eight people in my class um the teacher thought wow. I was a genius because I was like taking they thought I was taking maths books home to do them at home but I was just they were just so easy that I could just plow through them um which um isn't exactly the greatest way to make you feel integrated um and then um in my swimming school as so well did you feel like you did you feel like you kind of stuck out a bit um yeah I think um I really struggle to to find my group I think um in the school um it was it was so small that I didn't like had a very stable group of friends there was a lot of us in my previous school and I think moving to this one where there's only eight people it was it was such a massive change um and the other thing like I don't really remember it as a particularly happy time I, like my parents were getting divorced as well so home life was a bit a bit dramatic um so um yeah so those those were pretty pretty challenging years like pretty much everything that you could imagine in my like small stable bubble pretty much changed in that in that time um and I think I think there was a lot for me to to deal with um but I just kind of I guess I kind of Boris Johnson style took it on the chin (laughs) it sounds like a huge amount to deal with you know at, at, at the age of nine nine or ten yeah, I think it was probably one of the worst, uh, worst times for it to kick in because you kind of understand what's happening, but you're very much viewed as um, too stupid to really probably appreciate the situation. So I think I definitely felt underestimated quite a lot of the time. Um, mm. And I think, yeah, it was it was it was a lot. I'm, and I mean, even in the world of sport as well, I um, I used to love swimming. I really, really loved my old swimming club. I had lots of friends there. It was really great. And I moved to this new swimming club and again, I guess kind of outperformed my age and ended up at the age of nine um, swimming with a load of 14 year olds, which, you know, on one hand sounds really impressive, but like at the time was just meant that I was shoved to the back of the lane and, and kind of like, um, didn't didn't really have a peer group I guess that you know they used to tell me stories in the changing rooms about like you know cockroaches laying eggs in my stuff whilst I was swimming and all this sort of stuff which used to freak me out the uh, swimming pool here um was just so like old school that we regularly particularly in the morning sessions have to fish cockroaches out of the water before we got in oh wait they're legitimate cockroaches yeah, yeah, yeah like they'd get stuck on the lane roof and they'd be like swimming up and down so it was like a genuine oh my goodness I thought this was just like people pulling like the kids like 14 year olds pulling your leg they were I mean they were to a degree um I would be shocked if they actually laid eggs in our stuff but they were certainly around like cockroaches were a very real threat in the swimming days (laughs) but I guess that's like a it's kind of an interesting like point I think which was like I had this relationship with sport quite early on which was not that enjoyable um swimming like as anyone who swam I don't know did you swim as a as a kid um yeah with like my frosties you know gold award and stuff you know in summer holidays and then uh, yeah and then I kind of departed from the pool and I didn't return for about 10 years yeah that's probably that was probably a smart choice um I think swimming is one of those it's a very brutal sport I think like there's definitely a view in like competitive swimming that if you've not made it by 14 you're definitely not going to make it um and there's quite um an intense 
uh, workload put on kids in, in the pool, which, you know, on one hand is great and teaches you a lot about discipline. I think um, it makes you strong, makes you quite mentally, mentally strong and tough. Um, but on the flip side, it, it really teaches you a lot of lessons about kind of, um, I mean, well, and they're kind of positive and negative, I guess, but like, I don't think I enjoyed swimming for about five years or six years and just carried on doing it. And I was probably doing at least eight to 12 hours a week of it. Um, just there, sucking it up and, and going home. And I was definitely pretty fit. I wasn't one of the best swimmers by a long stretch of the imagination. I was pretty average, but it definitely, I think it, it helped very much form my mindset of like, um, of the athlete, which is like, you know, this is the goal and we just get through it and we kind of ignore the experience. Yeah. I, swimming is notorious, isn't it? For those, those hugely long, uh, hugely high training workloads. And I think, you know, 12 hours a week, I'm not sure I, I maybe I do about 12 hours a week of training right now, like <laughs> as a, as an adult, yeah, <laughs> like to do yeah, it as a, as a kid or a young teenager. Yeah. I mean, some of the, that's like, nuts some of the better teenagers than me would do, you know, like 18 hours or whatever. And quite a bit of that is done for school as well, which to be honest, I kind of like slightly enjoyed in a sort of sadistic way, (laughs) this idea of like getting up at 5am when no one else was around and and doing like achieving quite a lot before everyone had even had breakfast was quite, it's quite a nice um, thought, but yeah, getting woke up is not the greatest. (laughs) And so you were doing a lot of swimming, but you fell out of love with the sport, but you also had a huge amount going on both socially at school and in, in your family home. How did that kind of manifest itself as you progressed through your teens? Um, so I think when I hit high school, um, I started to really enjoy school again. Like, uh, there were a lot more people. It was a bigger world again. Um, I think, um, things at home were definitely not, not straightforward or easy, but, um, I found like, I found a, a rhythm again, um, in what was happening. Um, I think I started to, to find some, some friends swimming as well. Um, I didn't enjoy, I don't think I enjoyed the process of swimming, but it never really occurred to me to assess swimming on that level. Um, it was like, it was just another thing that I needed to endure in the day. And it was always, it had always been present in my life, I think. So it was, it was part of the process. I couldn't imagine not doing it. Right. It almost it sounds like it almost got to the point of you were um, completely unquestioningly doing it because you'd always done it because you assumed that it was a uh, fitting your goals. Yeah, and I think I think you know I think it's there's a lot of that, and I think I think the way in which education is set up very much teaches you that behaviour or that thought, thought that thought process. I think you know this idea of. Um, doing what you're good at rather than what you enjoy or like. Um, there's not much room for passion in, in education as it's currently structured. Um, and I think um, that definitely manifested in my life in, in swimming as in the way in which swimming was delivered as well um, was, was very much about um, doing it because I'd always done it rather than doing it because I really enjoyed doing it outside of school. And I think there was part of me as well was aware that it was good for me um, on some level, but it wasn't like, I didn't, I didn't have, a, I, I never really thought about what I would replace it with if I didn't. And it wasn't actually me who made the, the decision to stop swimming either. Um, 
my mum got to the point where she was kind of like, well, you're not really going to be any good at this and it's quite expensive. So I think you should just swim less or just not swim. <laughs> so that was, wow. that was, that was the decision. Um, so, um, was that a bit of a blow to your confidence at that point or something? So that's an interesting question. I guess, um, when I was like much younger, I have this really vivid memory of being at my grand's house. And I think I was I'm like, I don't know, I must have been like six or younger, I think. And I, I was doing my swimming badges and whatever. And there was some swimming on TV. I think it was the Commonwealth Games. And my grand did like what all grands do. And it's like, oh, are you going to be on the TV one day? You know, the classic grand one-liner. And um, <laughs> my mum my was like, oh, no, she won't. She's not good enough for that. <laughs> and I was like, at the age of six. Oh. Like, yeah, at the age of six, I was like, oh, wow, that was a bit of a punch. And then I was like, well it's probably fair I was like that's probably a fair summary um and so I think I that that mentality just followed like I don't like when my mum said that it was it was like well rationally that's probably the case so fair enough um wait at six years old you were like rationally that's probably the case like at six years old you're like oh that was a bit of a punch yeah I I don't think I even could conceive what a punch would be at that age yeah I don't know I think I'm that's how that's certainly how I remember it I certainly remember thinking wow that's like that's a strong statement like that's um I've never heard this before um but then I thought but then I also thought yeah that's probably true I mean there's probably kids who were much better at me than swimming at age six so I probably could get that um and I think you know I think it's pretty brutal yeah I think it stuck with me for a while like obviously I've got quite a strong memory of it but I also think I like maybe it took me longer to rationalize that and I think um I think you see I think I remember thinking well my gran only knows that I swim and sees swimmers on tv and has no visibility of the swimming ecosystem of which in which I sit at a very very ridiculously low level um and so and I think that kind of like naivety or, or like lack of vision of like the depth of an ecosystem is only one that you can have when you're not in it what what happened when you stopped swimming what came what what came next um so I picked up another hobby that I hated at the time as well. Um, so um, I think obviously I was quite fit from swimming. So I, when I got to secondary school, started winning all these cross country races. Um, so one, mm-hmm. like, as you do, yeah, won the school one, um, got a school record or something. Won the this the area one actually got everyone lost. Um, so I kind of ruined cross country for my region um by um getting the entire field lost in my first it was my first cross country race I'd ever done outside of school and obviously <laughs> the way I asked the PE teacher so what happens if we get lost and the PE teacher was like oh you know someone asks me this every year and no one ever gets lost and I was like okay well sure and she was like you know you just follow the marshals they put their arm out and you follow them basically obviously I'm running at the front of this group of 200 11 year olds and I get to the first marshal who sticks his arm out and there's two roads. I pick one and lead 200 other kids along with me. And we hit the, basically the, the bypass. <laughs> so we're running along a little and we start running and I'm like, this is weird, but you know, well, no one stopped me and they told me to keep running. So carry on running. Look behind me. There's like <laughs> 50 kids or so back behind. So carry on running. After about 10 minutes, I'm like, it's a bit weird that we haven't really met anyone. So turned around and ran back. <laughs> like, shall we carry on? And she said, yeah, let's carry on because they told us to carry on. So we carried on and we eventually reached this business park. And there were a lot of people <laughs> at the bus stop to go home. 
at which point I stopped again and ran back to the next like five people and was like is this a good idea and they were like yeah it doesn't look right and you you also you you ran back so you were this is like the first race you've done outside of your school and you're leading it by some distance yeah I was leading it by a fair distance yeah and then um basically we all like there's about five or six of us at this point who all agreed that we've probably gone wrong somewhere so we ran back out of the business park and ran back up the road again and found a coach onboarding like hundreds of 11 year olds <laughs> and apparently what had happened was um basically every, basically everyone then got loaded into the coach and driven back to the school except for my school and the school whose teacher came out and they made us run back but the um because <laughs> apparently we got everyone yeah. lost the teacher who'd come out made all her students run back but the um apparently someone had like passed on a bike and was like there's a load of kids running down the bypass what the hell's going on someone needs to rescue them <laughs> they like sent out a uh, bus and all the other races had to get cancelled and like we had to arbitrarily just pick some kids to go through to the next round but that was yeah that was my early experience across country um and i hated it as well wow it was I really hated it and that by the way that's not the only time that I've got lost in cross country it's a bit of a um, long running theme but <laughs> this was the first I'm I'm impressed just how sort of casual you are in um <laughs> leading this race because I, I don't know I'm someone who's done a lot of running um with a you know very moderate success but like I remember at school I was known as like perhaps the running person but you know for me it took years and years of hard work and training to sort of get near the front of a race you know I was never one of these people who would like you know smash out a race and win it like but here you are come along from doing swimming which is obviously great prep and win or if you wouldn't didn't get lost you sounds like you're in a good position yeah, it was. Um, I guess it was weird because I didn't have anywhere near as much success in the pool. Um, you know, I'm not the best swimmer in my swimming club and I would frequently get beaten by my peers. Um, I did. I was um, age disadvantaged in, in, in the pool. And if if like if I raced as per my age on that day, I would have done a bit better. But I still was like in no way, like even reasonably good at swimming. Um and then I guess I, I started winning these running races with minimal training, which um, was, I don't know, a surprise. But again, I didn't enjoy them. Like they were torture and not for one second did it, like it never occurred to me that if I just ran a bit slower, it would be less painful. That just never occurred to me. Okay. So this is like a really interesting pattern that seems to be emerging that you, you did initially enjoy swimming, but then you carried on doing swimming for quite a while and didn't enjoy it. And then you started running and didn't enjoy it. Did this pattern continue up to the point that you were training for the Olympics? Um, yeah, so that's a good question as well. I think, um, so I think my awareness of not enjoying it was pretty low. I think, um, Mm -hmm. whether I enjoyed it or not was not a consideration. And I think this is something that we were talking about just before we jumped on the podcast. Um, Mm. uh, and I think the awareness of like, what, like, I think why you're doing something is quite difficult to unpick and particularly at that age. And I think you end up falling into stuff quite a lot. And, you know, if you win a cross country race, it's quite difficult to then say, I don't want to do the next round that I've been selected for. So you end up doing it and it's this chore that's on your plate alongside doing your maths homework and doing, um, and I think, you know, I think when I stopped swimming, I made this rational decision to start, to start running because I was reasonably good at it. Again, like I didn't, I didn't decide to do it because I really loved it. I think it was drilled in that you should do stuff that you're good at rather than 
you should do stuff because you love it. And I think it wasn't that I didn't love it. Um, no, it was that I didn't love it. I just didn't realise that I didn't love it. And I didn't know that that's what I was looking for. I think, however, had you have given me the choice of play a netball match or go and run a 1500 metre race, I would have picked a netball match every day of the week. <laughs> I just wouldn't have been good at it. Right. Okay. Although you might have enjoyed doing netball more, it sounds like your opportunities were sort of, you were kind of just ended up doing lots of running because you were good at it. And you were like, you know, this this is what I'm, people are telling me I'm doing this. I've got through to the next round. How did that, um, how did that continue towards, you know, you obviously reached a very high level in running to be considered for, you know, the Olympic squad. How did that all come about? And what was your relationship with sport? at that point yeah interesting um I um I was actually like really mediocre at running as well like um I mean maybe okay I'm not gonna let you get away with this give us some of your results okay give give us your top result so um I would like I would always make the county team pretty much in uh, Mm -hmm. in so I'd always win my area race I would be in the top I would be in the top 10 of the county and make the county team and I'd go mm-hmm. to English schools. And all of my mm-hmm. English schools results were between 100th and 200th. So like, mm-hmm. that's where I'm getting mediocre from, which is like, um, yeah, which is mediocre on that scale, I guess. Or was, I was definitely You do like, have some GB vests, right, for cross country? Yeah, yeah, but they didn't come at this point. So I was mediocre for quite some time. Um, I I ran like I ran like a swimmer I guess so I basically did a lot of training um and interestingly like and and didn't really make any progress and I think this this like this transition really very much framed the way in which I think about um sport and and talent I guess um so um yeah my best like my best cross country result was about 109th in the English schools which um isn't massively impressive um until I moved to a different club so um I was running with this like amazing local club here um the coach was incredible super supportive it was like a really amazing family atmosphere but we did a lot of repetitive training so we we didn't have a really structured training plan um and we never really had we never really had any outstanding results in the in our group um and so there was another club um about 30 minutes away in in the same county which delivered all the top like all the top county performances and had a couple of um gb athletes um, whereabouts are we which county are we in we're in cheshire so i was in cheshire. West cheshire close to the wales border and in east cheshire the other side there's a, another club called vale royal which was an outstanding club and had loads and loads of excellent middle distance athletes including several gb cats um and so i i made the decision to go and train with those guys and see what happened um and it was a year after so um less than one year after joining them so in the first cross country season after joining them um i well after about six months i won a northern medal I was like, I think I was third in the Northern Championships. Um, I think mm-hmm. I was top 10 in the Nationals. I was top 10 in English schools cross country. Um, I won an Wow, English- that's a big shift from like 100th to top 10. Yeah, and I was devastated. That's huge. I was absolutely devastated. <laughs> I, didn't, 
I finished ninth, I think. And um, you had to be in the top eight to get an England vest. And I just, I was basically leading for pretty much the whole race and then had a shocking last hundred meters and completely died and like lost my England vest. I was so sad. Um, and then, um, yeah, then I won a medal on, on the track in the English schools as well. And then um, in that December, so effectively the following cross-country season, but like a year and three months after joining this club, um, I was um, fourth in Europe in the European cross-country championships. So my, yeah, like from kind of nowhere, had kind of, um, yeah, made international standard. Wow. And I think, and then, yeah, like I don't, I didn't really do anything different. Like I was still following the directions of a coach, but I just, I wasn't changed. I didn't change the amount of effort that I put in. I just was just training smarter. And if you apply that to the number of people who are fo- like, you know, finishing in the top 200 of the cross country, um, I doubt I was the most talented person basically in that top 200 of the English schools, but I was just fortunate enough to have some incredible coaches that led me to that ro- that position. Hmm. Right. <laughs> I I wish that my coaching was better because clearly it was my coaching that was to blame. The I never got into the top ten myself. I'm sure it was. You're probably far more. <laughs> um. Yeah. I I just have to work with what I've got, and I think that's slightly less than you. Um. <laughs> so. I feel that quite a lot of people at this point are going to be kind of thinking, my goodness, like Charlotte Roach, she is just some, you know, incredibly sporty, athletic person from from a young age. Um, And maybe kind of actually struggling to relate to sort of the level of um, commitment and passion. I don't know if it necessarily was passion, but the level of commitment and excellence that you achieved in sport but you were taken down a huge rung when you were training for the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, um, so yeah, I was having this, like, I had like a really weird, like through a few years, um, between, uh, from when I joined that club, I had like this very quite like rigid perception of myself, which was that like, I was just, you know, I was just another athlete. I was like this average athlete that, you know, always competed and did like, did my best, but it was never particularly interesting. And I like mm-hmm. my whole trajectory completely changed. Like, you know, everyone who was super into athletics at that time, like was aware of me. Um, um, I, you know, I, I picked up this kind of status that I didn't really um, relate to myself. You know, I would start races thinking, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to finish in the middle here. And then, you know, I'd get to like, this happened to me in the European cross country championships. I was like, well, you know, this is the European championship. So I'll just jog around um, and see where I finish, you know, I'll just see how it goes jog so around. Start, you know, in the middle with everyone. And then, you know, I sort of wake up in the middle of the race and I'm like, I've only got like one lap left or something. I need to put some effort in. And I started speeding up and basically ended up finishing fourth. And I think, I don't know, I was like about 30th or something before that. And, um, it was written up afterwards as me timing it perfectly, but it was just me in my head thinking, well, I'm probably going to finish in the middle somewhere. And then like completely underrating myself. Um, and it, so mm. that kind of happened. So like my, my view of my sporting ability hadn't really caught up to where it was, which was really weird. Mm-hmm. And things had changed so fast. My goals had shifted like 
from finishing in the top 100 to like meddling at the European Championships like just bizarre um and, mm. and being hard on myself for not as well um it's funny how like goals just shift without and then I guess on the flip side I was like I just started university I was getting like absolutely hammered with the amount of work that I was supposed to be delivering on top of <laughs> championships and those two things were just completely incompatible. and um I was trying to work out where my priorities lay in life so that I could balance these things um and then on top of that um ended up basically overtraining and getting injured. So there was a year where I couldn't actually run. I was like well supported. I was mentored by Kelly Holmes. I was very in a very, very fortunate position. Um oh. yeah, I was um going to Big Dog. Yeah, I know. I was surrounded by lots of big dogs. Um much, much bigger dogs than me. Um and it was it was an amazing place to learn. Like Kelly was incredibly motivating, incredibly um focused. I've never met met anyone so focused and gave us all like an amazing level of belief that I don't think any of us had before and this amazing insight mm. like to be someone like Kelly um and can you share some of that yeah so um just like Kelly is just unbelievably focused um we like were lucky enough to spend like uh, like a, at least a week might have even been two weeks in Loughborough like going through every element of training and racing with her, like, you know, how to train, how to race, how you should visualize uh, performing in those races. Um, and um, I remember like we had this classroom lecture where we were, um, where Kelly was kind of making us go mentally through that period of preparing for a race. And, you know, there was me who just like, you know, rock up and just wing it every time kind of thing. And there was like, you know, there was this huge, for me, there was this massive void between just doing it as a side project whilst at school and at uni and thinking about it like it's a career and like you're going to win a gold medal, like winning a gold medal at just at, at the Olympics. And I know this is really bizarre, had never really occurred to me. Like, I don't think, I wasn't in sport because I thought I was going to win. I was in it because I'd always been in it. Um, and, um, and not because you loved it either from what it sounds like which I find fascinating yeah. yeah like I didn't like there was elements of it that I loved and I think you know the bits that I really loved were like being around my friends and like going to races with people and that like team like camaraderie camaraderie in the community of it and I couldn't imagine being without that like most of my friends were in that world um and I didn't but I didn't like love racing and I didn't I I didn't I, you know, didn't walk around with this goal to win. Usually I had some goal, which was like, I want to make this race or make this standard, but it wasn't like necessarily to win. And, but Kelly was like, it's all about the gold medal. Like, you know, this is, there's this one dream and like, basically you should all have this. And I'd never even considered having it. Like just seemed like, you know, my mom had told me age six, that was not, that was not a thing. Um, (laughs) So um, yeah, it was, she's got amazing presence as well um and yeah I like I just learned so much about um focus and commitment and dedication and you know if you don't believe it it's just not going to happen and that was very very Mm. um did that dream of a gold medal become your dream um I think I think I I think it did but I'm not sure really dared 
believe it. Like I, um, you know, I think I started to think maybe it was possible around that point. Um, and that maybe it was something like, I think I remember leaving that specific weekend and thinking the, the track is my future. Like all I really want to do now is focus on, on nailing the track. Um, but so like running, running on the 400 meter track, 1500 meters, 3000 meters, 800 meters, that sort of thing. Exactly. Um, and, and then, and then it was very shortly after that, that I ended up getting injured. Um, I got plantar fasciitis. Um, classic yeah so running injury in the foot right from too much training essentially yeah classic overuse um, injury and it was like all my own fault basically I'd I'd gone on this stupid trip to China because I was like well I don't want my whole life to be out running so I'll go to China and teach them English because I might not get the other another chance because you know like if training goes really seriously I won't be allowed obviously my coach was like pretty pissed off um came back in crap form and then like absolutely hammered it for about <laughs> weeks was in incredible form like ridiculous form and obviously had got <laughs> through wholly unsustainable means and then he got this injury, um which I just didn't get rid of um and it was I was finding really difficult because all I could think about was the track and like you know had support from Kelly's team and it was all about trying to get back on the track and, and get like get some good performances in and it, it just wasn't happening for me. And that was frustrating. And that's where I considered triathlon. Basically what happened was obviously I had the swimming background. Um, whilst I was cross training, I ended up getting back in the pool. Um, I made the university swimming team as a, um, side, like irrelevant point, but, um, and then, um, I don't think it's that trivial because like a swimming background is a huge, uh, coming from someone who doesn't have a swimming background, when I first got back in the pool after 10 years, yeah. I basically sank. Yeah. Like I got put into the slowest lane um, at my local tri club uh, yeah. with these guys who are like 50, 60, 70. And I was like, I, you know, like I'm, I'm 17, I'm lean, I'm mean, <laughs> I'm going to like smoke these guys. And when I started swimming, I realized I just didn't know what to do with my arms. Yeah. Like I literally like did not know how to move my arms in a way that would propel me forward unless it was breaststroke and we and were doing front crawl. That, that moment when you just start sinking, you're like, oh my God, I need to do something otherwise I'm just going to fall to the bottom. <laughs> um, but yeah, I uh, yeah, obviously it was super relevant for, for triathlon and basically through through like a series of networks um heard that British triathlon at that time, around that time that I just started swimming, um, had um were looking for runners who could swim basically um for this program mm. called um tri gold which was this goal of um british triathlon have worked out that the triathletes who could run the fastest were going to win all the medals which is what the brownies were pretty much um cleaning up doing and so they were looking yeah. for some awesome runners to move who could swim or who were reasonable at swimming and could learn cycling to move into triathlon and train for the olympics um and when it was first floated, I was so focused on the track. I was like, nah. Um, but basically ended up getting talked around to, well, I went on some trial days. So I went to Loughborough. I got like assessed in the pool and I was swimming pretty well. Um, obviously wasn't allowed to run, but I had some decent running form times behind me and then like got assessed to see whether I could cycle. Um, did a VO2 max test on the bike. Um, the others did a VO2 max test running, which I couldn't do um and then we had some psychological tests and that kind of thing and then basically ended up getting selected as one of the like mm. people on this program um mm. 
and then you know British Triathlon were like you know well you, you can always come back to running um we'll we'll get you fit again you can't run right now so you might as well come and train with us and in a year you can decide if you want to do triathlon or if you want to run um right so I was like well yeah I kind of get that um so I might as well give it a shot um but my university was like super not keen about this like they don't have an option Mm. for you to pause your degree and and go and train for the olympics and come back you either have to be too ill to study or you're studying because there's nothing more important than studying right pretty pretty rigid favoring the academics uh everyone can um submit their guesses of where where charlotte was um (laughs) yeah it was um it was like this it was just inconceivable to them that anything would be a higher priority than your your academic um work <laughs> and so basically i had to tell my uh, my tutor at university that i was too ill to study because um my foot injury was causing me such mental strain um that i i needed to get it fixed before i could continue to study um and the only right it sounds like quite a tool it was it was <laughs> um, tool, t- tool yeah. story it was it was and so basically you know the only place i could possibly get this fixed was in loughborough which was where um this triathlon program was based and um it looked like i was going to need treatment every day so i wasn't sure how that was going to work and basically ended up getting signed off for like a a year to get this sorted out um so i got medically signed off um for a year um and then ironically went to train for the olympics um and then even more ironically actually got run over and was pretty much too ill to do anything so that's how that one turned okay yeah right so just um you you started training at Loughborough you were doing some pretty hefty training yeah you were going towards a slightly different dream that you it wasn't the track um it wasn't straight running but you're going towards triathlon you were presumably in some good shape you went out for a bike ride yeah can you give us a bit more detail yeah so basically what happened was one day we were out on a bike ride um and there was like um there was like basically it was the whole olympic team so it was about 12 athletes i think and a couple of coaches in the group i was like right at the back of the group um on the like so we were in a peloton basically i was at the back right so closest to the to the road um we were going down a single mm. lane road um and basically what happened is like everyone bunched i think we were like sort of going up a hill my um my tire hit the tire of the person in front who like moved out slightly i think this is how i remember it i like I'm not sure it's the greatest memory and then um i got flung onto the other side of the road basically um and hit by an oncoming land rover um I broke my back in 12 paces, punctured both lungs, broke all my ribs and my collarbone. Um, and I think I was the only person in the situation who thought I was going to survive it. Um, there was, like, I obviously had no real awareness of what happened. All I remember was falling off. And I just remember being on the road thinking, I can't breathe and my back hurts. <laughs> um, and I think... Your back was broken in 12 places. Yeah. Both lungs punctured yeah like you got you got smashed yeah I got, got you got properly smashed by this land rover yeah i got pretty hammered um i got like i got very aggressively hit on the right side and then yes yeah, so it punctured the right lung and then one of the broken i think then yeah so then the blood punctured the other one by flowing into it or something um 
And I, I was like, so basically I was extremely unlucky in this one moment. And then I was very, very lucky in the sense that the first person to stop was a Leicester Tigers rugby physio who um, mm-hmm. recognised how serious it was. I don't think there was anyone else who recognised how serious it was. And then she had to make the call as to whether to um, leave me flat um, and not paralyse me or risk paralysing me, but stopping me from drowning. Because she recognised that I was gargling. And so like blood was flowing across and if she left you're gargling on your own blood yeah basically I was I was drowning in my own blood essentially um and she she recognized that was happening and if she hadn't recognized that I probably wouldn't be here um so it was it was touch and go at the end um but yeah I was I was very lucky and then I was very lucky again because there was a doctor on the air ambulance and there was not always a doctor on air ambulances um and they could, that meant that they could do an emergency chest drain on one of my lungs. And then the other one, I think, was done in the air ambulance on the way to hospital. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty tense times. Um, luckily, I had no real idea how serious it was or what had even happened. Um, it was just, I think in my head, it was just another one of those athletic situations, which is like, I'm feeling pain, but I just have to get through this, <laughs> which is like the classic athlete, athlete mindset, I think. Right. <laughs> and at some point presumably you woke up in hospital yeah so I was like in the hospital so I was aware that like something had happened obviously I was in a lot of pain and again I like was taking the athlete mindset of this which is like okay well I need to take my recovery seriously here so I need to rest I need to eat um mm-hmm. and like my people had come to visit me so I was like my dad was there and like I was like oh you didn't need to come like what are you doing here like it's fine <laughs> so I'm like telling everyone how fine it is obviously it's not um I remember like my dad like trying to encourage me to eat some food which I did and then like I spent the entire night being sick and I like never been this sick before in my whole life and I like vomiting with like all your chest broken is just just the worst thing um so that was not that fun it must be like having (laughs) shooting pains across your chest just like everything like the level of pain was like um like unimaginable like even for like Mm. like, on a new level um Mm. and then I think like again like I had like my view was like okay well I've got this run that I need to do later so like I think later that day you're like it's part of my training I've got a run to do do a run and then you know like had had anyone told you what had happened (laughs) at this point I don't I don't know about at that point so I was like I think I was sort of vaguely aware that maybe I'd not have to do the run I remember like the surgeon came up to me and was like, well, you know, this is what's happened. We need to do this like emergency spinal surgery because this is like, you know, this like you've got this chance fracture here. And if we don't sort it out, then you may like there may be a paralysis risk. You know, can we have your consent for this, basically? And I was like, my (laughs) I asked him, what what are my chances of survival? (laughs) Which is like, (laughs) like sat there with all the options in the world um and then he like I just remember him giving me this like really long answer and then me just being like I'll oh, just do it just do it just anything to just stop talking just get on with it I'm just in too much pain I can't take it in so he he didn't he didn't answer that he declined to give me a percentage which um I think I was quite aggrieved at and then um the other thing I managed to mention before we went ahead with the surgery was that I had this training camp in Spain that was in like two weeks that I needed to go to. <laughs> and he was like, don't you worry, you'll be totally there. And I was like, great, this guy knows knows what page are on. <laughs> Obviously, that wasn't happening either. Um, I, I don't so he was just appeasing you. Yeah, yeah, totally, which is like the perfect thing to do, I think. Um, 
the um and then I like the next few days like I think I, I have one memory of the situation and everyone who came to visit me was like nah like you were in a completely different planet I was completely confused and upset why like, I didn't get why everyone was crying at my bedside and um I thought I was in the best hospital ever like I had two I had two doctors and nurses that were like around all the time I couldn't see any other patients I just was completely oblivious to the fact that I was on intensive care and um <laughs> like I don't know I just yeah. okay and my reality was not not like the same as anyone else's um that sounds like quite a good thing to be honest yeah it had was, you it was and like the other thing that was like really weird at that time was I um I was a physio assistant before I went to university and so um I spent a lot of time trying to get elderly patients to kind of stand up or get off their bed and like walk a few steps and go back and um usually they'd try to get you to get lost like they didn't want to move they were quite comfortable where they were and then the physio would rock up and try to get them to walk and um Mm. And then the tables turned, right? I was the patient in bed that was really not wanting to move. And when the physios turned up, I was like, oh my God, you're not going to try to get me out of bed. And the number of physios that rock up usually give you an indication as to how serious it was. So it was three of them. Um, so you're like, okay, mm. you're not expecting a lot here and you're expecting to give a lot of support. And they were like, okay, so we're going to get you out of bed now. And I was like, you have to be kidding. Like I like, wasn't even breathing for myself. I was so like, you've come quite a long way from this point from like thinking you could do a training camp yeah 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 exactly yeah my mental shift was was drastic I was like I can't get out of bed um can you just take us back to like actually what you're what you were thinking you know suddenly you've realized that you're no longer Charlotte Roach who can like bash out training camps and cope with 30 hour training weeks like you're you're unable to get out of bed that that must have been a huge shift actually I don't think I got it at that point I think that was very much a like, this is, I think that was very much a momentary thing, which again, probably was positive, but I, I didn't understand it then. So it was just like, right now, I just can't get out of bed. And you guys can, I know what you want me to do. And I know how you're going to write the assessment of this, this visit up. <laughs> um, but I like, anyway, I did manage like getting, turning to get off the bed took, must've taken at least 20 minutes, half an hour. And then I just remember this moment and this is like such a bizarre moment. And this probably identifies how far I'd come. Like probably it was probably about three days, two or three days after the accident. I remember putting my feet on the floor and then being like, okay, now I've got to stand up. And just after like 20 minutes of trying to turn off the bed and remembering, and then like pushing through my legs and standing up and being like, oh, actually my legs work. And like, that was easy. And yeah, just like that shift from like, oh, my legs work and I can stand up from let's do a five-hour ride followed by a, an hour and a half run like was such a such a shift and and that like that mental, I see the mental physical shift took a long time to close that gap right what was that so that was that part of that beginning realization of your new limits at that point that you're like yeah standing up yeah it was a really weird time it was a really weird time because it was impossible to talk about my life um as one linear event like there was life before the accident and there was life after the accident in that moment because mm-hmm. there was things I could do, which I could no longer do. And there was expectations that I had, which I could no longer realistically hold on to. Mm. Um, and it was, yeah, it was really weird. It, yeah, it was quite difficult. Um, I think um, I was lucky in that, like I, I managed to 
I managed quite quickly to transition my mindset from like, this is just a different journey now. Like I had this previous view of what my journey was going to be. This is just a different one. Mm. And I have to modify my outcomes. And you must have had a similar mindset, right? You must have gone through this process too. Yeah, it sounds like what you were talking about there, you quite quickly accepted your new circumstances. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, I think I'm gonna caveat that with like I was on like a reasonable positive upward projection. I didn't have uh-huh. that many like there were obviously days which were difficult, but I didn't have lots of repeated step setbacks, which I think could have made that very difficult. Mm. Um Okay. But yeah, I mean you must have some interesting insights here. Yeah, I think um uh it took me a very long time to well it took me quite a long time to accept my my new reality and for me it was something that happened in stages uh, and like little realizations that all the assumptions that you'd made um when i found out i was diagnosed with cancer i was um you know there are some things that I was like okay bloody hell you know like um there's going to be treatment and, um, and I might not, you know, the chances are I'm not going to live for a very long time. Uh, th- those um, broad brush realizations, mm. I could get my head around, in the, even though they were just absolutely horrible to do that. Mm. But what was interesting was the sort of, it took a, a while for it to filter down into all the other assumptions that I'd made, the smaller ones of like, oh, um, like, um, oh, I, I'm looking forward to like, you know, going on that next, like, um, uh, trip abroad with my friends from university, you know, like next summer. Oh, wait, like, I'm, I actually can't assume that I'll be there, yeah. you know, um, or I don't know, like, you know, is even stuff like, oh, I kind of just assumed I'd have kids at some point. Yeah. Oh. Like, wait, I can't even, I can't even do that anymore. Um, and I think it was the same when my brother died mm. that, um, when John died, those like realizations of like, and this sounds like a bit bizarre perhaps, but like at some point I was like, oh, you know, you know, um, I, I got diagnosed first and, and, and then John died and I was like, wait, if, if, if if I don't have kids, then there simply will be no grandchildren for my parents. Mm. Like I can't even rely in inverted commas on 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 John to do that. That is, it's perhaps t- totally bizarre to say this, but like that's the kind of those tiny or huge realizations of like this is what it means to have this huge change, two huge changes in my life, and so. Mm. And it, it, I think that's right, isn't it? Because like, you, you don't realize. I think it's very easy to not realize. There's like lots of visions of yourself that you think you have in almost like every kind of slice of the, of of the things that you interact with, um, and you do make these projections about what you think you're going to be doing or how you think that's going to happen. And you probably only ever become aware of them if they if it doesn't follow that plan or it doesn't. And yeah, it, it's, it's mm-hmm. almost like a isn't it like there's you and then like every single area of you that kind of um follows down from that um and how how do you feel about it now what in particular like do you like 
how do you feel about those assumptions now are you more comfortable with them or are you like do you are there still some way you're still discovering them in some way I think I'll probably be discovering them for perhaps the rest of my life mm. I think the majority though I've I've probably um realized um and to a greater or lesser extent I'm at peace with I think my attitude to life has just totally changed mm. in one I think accepting what happens happens mm. and like this whole thing of like you know um thinking that life will give you certain things you have certain expectations of life that you're entitled to I just don't have that nearly the same way I probably do because I'm human and I kind of revert back to my old habits but like um I don't assume that I'm going to have my health I think there's that sort of two things like acceptance and assumptions I think those are the sort of two things one accepting your circumstances and the second kind of like assuming something will happen um and then accepting the change when it does happen what about you? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so as I said, like I think I I went on this process of discovering all of those other little factors that you don't consider, like in hospital. Mm. Like again, mm. you know, when I was in, hospital, I was like, like, all I need to do is get home, and then everything will be fine. Um, and then you get home, and then you're like, oh well, I'm now at home, mm. and I don't have a bed that we get out of bed and I don't like I think you know I made this assumption that I'm I wasn't going to take all my problems home and then you know I kept I kept discovering things that I couldn't do for quite some time like um my proprioception was all completely out so I would you know I remember turning sideways to pass through a door and then hitting my back and I was like oh my back's over there um and so just aligning like mentally and physically where I was like my brain clearly had one projection of who I was and then there was my physical state which was something completely different and my physical ability as well was also completely different I remember having this massive argument with my mom when I left hospital I managed to con the doctors basically into letting me out of hospital after about 12 days or something um and I did this by pretty much making sure I was out of bed when they did their ward round and like I would prop myself into the corner (laughs) like standing up and then I'll be basically like yeah yeah, everything's fine it's all good um and then like eventually managed to get signed off but I still had um open wounds in both sides of my chest um why did you do this I think I like I came back down to that like when I get home it will be fine um I was in a hospital which was like an hour and a half away from my parents house and like I was kind of in like no man's land I guess um and then like so I get home and then I have to go to the doctor every day to get my, my chest wounds redressed. Um, so like for the first few days, my, my mom drove me and then she had to go back to work. So she was like, okay, well I've organized the neighbor to come round and she's going to tie your shoes up and she's going to drive you to the doctor. And I was like, no, 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 she's not going to do that. I'm fine. I can do all this stuff myself. Like I'm going to walk myself there. I'm not like getting driven by the neighbor. Like the doc, the doctor's just around the corner. Um, so like, basically this I just remember leaving the house and start walking towards the doctors and I get about halfway there and I'm like oh my god I don't think I'm gonna make it (laughs) I was like I actually don't think I can get all the way there so I had to like stop 
try to sit on a wall, which was basically impossible, and have a rest and then carry on. And I made it in a few stages in the end, got to the doctor. And I was like, oh, my God, I am not where I thought I'd be. And I think that was a major realisation that, like, I wasn't just going to get home and start training and everything was going to be fine. It was like, there is a process to go through here and I am much farther, further back in it than I thought. Um, how how did that make you feel? Like, um, realising that you had to stop a few times just to walk to the doctors? Yeah, the doctor, I googled how far it was later. It was 500 metres. So it was like, it was a pretty... Um, it was it was quite a big slap in the face, I think, in terms of like um, where I was at. And there were a few other like really weird mental quirks as well that happened um, during my recovery. So another like outstanding one was um, I was really keen to get cycling, go to the gym and start training as soon as possible. So the obvious, how was I going to get to the gym? I was obviously going to cycle there. So I got my bike and like was going to cycle there. And like my parents were like, no, no, you can't get on your bike. What the hell? You're crazy. All this sort of stuff. And like, I didn't really get why they thought it was so weird. Like, I just wanted to get to the gym. Like, what was the problem? And obviously, they thought mm. I was so shit at cycling that I was going to get knocked off again or whatever. Um, but that never occurred to me. Um, ironically, I did actually get knocked off my bike. I was cycling along the canal, and um, like an old man basically must have got like really confused or something, and literally turned around and walked straight into me on my bike. And I like got knocked off, and then had a little panic attack about it got back on my bike mm. um how difficult was it when you had to you know you had these like realizations that you couldn't even walk 500 yeah. meters that you know like cycling to the gym was more of an ordeal than you might have expected was it difficult to sort of see the way back to being fit and healthy um no I think I think it was just like I think again like my grip on like my goal was so tight it was just like I just need to keep like it was it was I guess it was a case of like I can either let this defeat me or like if I if I'm gonna have this reaction every time this happens or if I'm gonna be worried about this every time this happens I'm never gonna cycle again was I think the way in which Mm -hmm. I'm looking at that and the same with like walking to the gym it was a bit like okay, well, I'm much further back than I thought I am. And I can either let that defeat me or I, or I just need to keep, keep trying to build up. And I think, you know, particularly with the running side of it, um, I think I was running like 90 minutes about six weeks after, after the, um, again, that was, that's pretty nuts. I got lost. Um, so (laughs) that wasn't the plan. Charlotte, Uh, really? And it was, it was awful actually. I remember that like the next day, because I had a lot of metal work in my spine. It like, I, the impact of the metal in my back at the time was just like reverberating quite a long time after that. But, um, again, like, yeah. And again, this comes back to one of the questions that you mentioned earlier about the doctors not really getting it. Like they really didn't get it. Um, but the coming back to your other point, just on the, um, the the doctors really didn't get what? Well, like I, you know, I was expecting to get guidance and I would love your view on this as well. Like I was expecting them to be like, well, here's quite clearly what you, what you shouldn't do right now. And here, here are the things that you can do. And so these are the steps we're going to take, and this is where we're going to get to it. And it was this whole like transition was pitched to me by British triathlon as well. The NHS will manage your care initially and that will reduce. And as that reduces, we'll increase our level of care, which like uh, didn't happen. But um, I would go to like, I'd go to the doctor and I'd be like, cool. Okay. So what can I do? Like, can I go running? Can I go swimming? Can I go cycling? What can I do here? 
And I mean, one of the issues was that I had three consultants. I had a shoulder consultant, a um, chest consultant and a, a spinal consultant. So they all had different views. The second problem was that I think they expected me to just lie in bed for like six weeks, which obviously wasn't going to happen. So the the mm. advice I got was be guided by pain, which is like literally the worst thing you could ever say to an athlete. Um, yeah, particularly you, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, so I got. There's not enough pain yet. There's not enough pain yet. Yeah. <laughs> Work harder. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I did get. I did get pretty good at like identifying the difference between like, um, fatigue and like you know, um, training pain and um, like I'm my shoulder is like bone grinding pain, I guess, uh, or, or mm. whatever you want to call it. Um, but I, I definitely did take it too far. Like I, um. I was swimming after like, I don't know, three weeks or something. And uh, no one shocked to hear that my collarbone didn't stabilize. And I ended up like, I ended up competing internationally with my collarbone, like detached pretty much. Um, Cause it, the whole thing just stabilized separate to like, with, with no like join. Um, uh-huh. I remember having this conversation with like, with the shoulder consultant, like, and he was like, Oh, it will knit, it will knit, it will knit. And then it was, and then it changed from it will knit to, well, it doesn't matter if it doesn't knit. Some people don't have collarbones. And I was like, yeah, sure. But most of them aren't competing in international triathlons. So like, <laughs> that's fine. But And then he was like, well, you know, sometimes you just need to understand that some things will end your career and this might be it. And I was like, mate, like I had spinal surgery. I've had like two lungs punctured. I'm not stopping because I've got a broken collarbone. Like that's the most outrageous, like. <laughs> can I, can I ask here? Um, there's clearly something driving you very powerfully to get back in the pool to start running um I don't quite feel I understand what that was what was it that's a good question um I think like I didn't I didn't have anything else at that point right so um I obviously had that goal and that goal had been driving me for a long time like the goal of I think it was just to be honest I actually think it was driven by curiosity um like I was always interested in like how good could I get if I did everything that I could like as a runner Mm. if I do you know if I keep doing this how good will I get and again it was like I think it was more that than oh I really want to win a gold medal um and um Mm. and again like with triathlon again the goal was still there it was still like I still want to see if I can achieve this and I still want to see how good I can get despite this having happened to me I think and then I think the other side to that was like, at that time, I wasn't at uni because I'd left because I was too ill to study because my foot was so sore. Um, I, um, yes. I know, yeah, that's fine. Now it was your back that's sore instead. <laughs> well, British Triathlon was like, oh, well, you know, now, um, now you can't train. You might as well go back to uni. It's like, I can't go back to uni six weeks after term has started and after I told them that my foot was too sore that I couldn't study like I've now got like two punctured lungs a load of broken ribs and a broken back like I don't think that story adds up Uh right okay so that was really it really happened this accident happened pretty soon after you started training with the GP squad literally less than two months or three months in three months super super early Mm. um and yeah, so I think I just didn't have anything else. Like I didn't, I wasn't studying, I wasn't working. I was in between university terms and, um, and I, the only goal that I had, the only thing to do was this. And that's, I think, I think why, in addition to this, like kind of burning curiosity that I'd had for a long time. Um, mm. 
and see I, how far you could go yeah how far can you push yourself i've never done a triathlon either <laughs> like this like <laughs> goal i nearly died doing like achieving oh my like, goodness done a triathlon so like I wanted to at least get to the point where I'd done one of these triathlons that I nearly like killed myself trying to get to um but I'm, I'm curious about how how you find your how how you found your medical experience and like whether you were like just this enormous outlier on like a you know a spectrum of attitude because I, I think we've we've had a bit of a brief conversation about this in the past and this like you know how disconnected your like kind of general physical well-being and like your, the lifestyle choices that you can take that impact that and medicine are just different realms and it's bizarre i i really agree with you i think this is a really fascinating thing to talk about that um it seems like on one hand you know that this world of doctors and medicine kind of seems to exist in terms of like pills and surgery as the things that will make you better, right? That are going to cure you, um, cure in a loose sense. Um, and the other factors of um, your lifestyle, and I think very much physical activity um, and your diet are kind of like not even optional extras. They're like footnotes in the um, yeah in in a treatment plan in a recovery plan. And to me, that's utterly bananas um, because the, 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 the power of exercise to help you through different treatments. Um, and I don't think this is, this isn't just, um, you know, chemotherapy or cancer. You know, I, my dad um, tore his ACL, um, I don't know, five years ago, maybe. Um, and he did much more exercise than the doctor or the physio recommended. Um, you know, he was out on his handbike, um, doing as much as he could to be as active as possible without doing really stupid stuff like running on his ACL um, too soon. I'm sure that's the kind of thing that you might have tried out, but um, he didn't. But he recovered much, much quicker than the doctors and with a much higher degree of then um, preserving his function you know he, he now does he goes all sorts of running and um that's the sort of thing the doctor said he probably wouldn't be able to do so i'd say that i think there is some you know powerful benefits in terms of you know i am i think they're poorly understood but it's going to be in terms of you know, increasing blood flow um and you know increasing decreasing the amount of um increasing the amount of say anti-inflammatories um that can be enormously powerful say in re recovering from injuries but then also I think in probably, you know, a lot of other conditions as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, exercise is basically a stress on the body, isn't it? Which is, is similar to an illness. And so it's, it's almost that preparation for it. Yeah. It's interesting because I think exercise does seem to be, it, it is a stress in a sense, but, um, and I, and I think if you like train massively, you know, then you can do damage. But I think, um, there are so many, positive benefits um in, in in terms of the which promote recovery or re, uh, promote the resilience of your body or your strength or your you know mental positivity um and that seems to be something that has been to a very large extent missed um or not harnessed by the um you know by the nhs and, and other medical bodies and i wonder if that's because you know there aren't multi-billion pound companies that are sponsoring the research to actually show the benefits of exercise yeah i think uh the skeptic in me would definitely agree there i think there's it's 
hugely under-researched and could be incredibly is I think it is incredibly powerful I think Lucy's probably the expert to speak on that but um yeah I think it's um I uh I mean in in both the physical and the mental sense right um yeah I um went to a conference it was like Oxford run by Oxford psychiatry or Oxford medicine and they were talking about um stuff that they were working on to do with mental health and they had some cool stuff on VR and obviously they had like they were talking about a lot of um drugs and they didn't mention exercise once and I asked them wow thought it was interesting that you mentioned exercise and uh, the the lead guy just stood up and said oh well yeah the reason for that is because there isn't really much evidence to support exercise and I was like you have to be kidding like you could easily have said within your rights that like exercise isn't one of the areas that you were researching at the moment but to say that there's not much evidence I think is is just not unsupportable I think it is unsupportable now and increasingly so but that is a surprising considering how effective at least anecdotally and the increasing amount of research that's been published Mm. shows it is how effective it is there should be a lot more research to actually understand it much better yeah how did you you know you did a lot of exercise to help with your recovery though i'm not sure it was quite as you explicit that you were trying to help with your recovery but you had this goal to sort of push your body yeah um how on earth did you get back to well, not even get back to, but actually start competing for triathlons for GB. Like this is miles away from the state that you're in. How did you get there? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I managed to do my first international triathlon, um, six months later. Um, that's nuts. Yeah. It was pretty crazy. I managed to do I'm it. also, I'll just say I'm a tiny bit jealous. <laughs> I've done triathlon for years. I've never reached like true GB standard. Um, it's hopefully a pipe dream, but I mean, it is a pipe dream. Maybe I'll get there. But like, what? Yeah. <laughs> How do you do this? <laughs> I mean, I think triathlon is not as clear cut as running, right? So if you were if you were a runner and you rocked up to the European trials and you and you came in the top four, let's say, provided there were like um, not more than two pre-selections, then you're probably going to go to the European Cross. Um, whilst in triathlon, you can't get into those races unless you're well known by British triathlon, which for me, fortunately, I was. So I had a bit of extra help in terms of getting into the elite races, which um, which are not accessible for many amateurs, which I think is a shame. But um, I, th- there were a lot of hurdles to overcome. I think the least of those worries were, were the physical in, in the sense that like it was just a case. I was, I was broadly lucky. Like I did go from stages of like, okay, just walk to the toilet by myself, you know, put on a t-shirt by myself, tie my shoes by myself, walk to the doctors by myself. So it was like small steps, but generally they moved in the right direction. Um, I think um, the collarbone was a bit of an issue, but I think the main challenge was like the mental one. Um, so they were like, a couple of, I had like two really low points um, in that six months. Mm-hmm. And um, the first one was, Um, I was allocated a coach by British Triathlon who decided that they sent me this letter, which was like, um, we're dropping you from the program because we no longer believe that you have potential to win a gold medal at at 2012, which is the aim of the program, which made me feel pretty small. I think there were probably a lot of things that they could have said in that, in that letter, which, which I'd probably just have accepted. Like, um, you're not really in the best of shape to continue with this, but we do think you have potential. So like, 
maybe come back later or or something else like but to say that they didn't think I had any potential was just like yeah that felt pretty pretty um that that hurt I think um and it, it definitely I had that letter on my on my wall um and I'd like just to motivate me every day to make me train um as hard as I could Wait, so rather than like chucking that letter in the bin or burning it, you, you put it on your wall? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, the thing like the thing that I had in my head was like, okay, well, they're not going to support me. So really all I can do is be good enough so that they can't ignore me. Um, and so that was, that, was the, that was the attitude with which I took. Um, and I think, I mean, the hardest thing for me um, – like the biggest mental bridge that I had to that I had to get over was one which I didn't expect and um it was when I um I went out and had to get back on my road bike I um I just expected because I've been riding my mountain bike to the gym now for like three months or something had no problems like didn't even consider getting on a bike and then it was like the first second that I clipped my feet into the road bike, I just started panicking. And I was just like, I could just see like everything was a hazard. I thought like people were going to run out in front of me. I thought cars were going to knock me off. I thought like I was, it was the first time I'd cycled in a group and um, since my accident as well. And I could see, and I was cycling with a junior triathlon group. And the only people I'd ever cycled in a peloton with was like British triathlon GB squad. And these guys were mm. not cycling like the British triathlon. Or they were like cutting each other up and like weaving all over the place. And like all I could see was just crashes. Um, and I was, I was terrified. And I think like, so the whole group was kind of cycling and I was like cycling well off the back of the group, just like in my head flitting between like, oh my God, I'm going to die and man up. And like, just thinking you're going to die isn't going to help you. So like and you know and then like I would flip and then like you know a Land Rover would pass or something and I'd stop crying and then I'll be like okay well crying's not going to help you so you know I'd, and I just like flip between these two mindsets and what was really hard is that like the coach on that ride just completely ignored me um and we must have been cycling for about 35 mm. minutes or something and I was like okay I was like really really struggling it was like a whole load of juniors who like you know just cracking on as usual and had, were completely oblivious to the situation the coach wasn't oblivious to my situation and he wasn't oblivious to the fact that this was the first time I got back on my road bike and so we get to this point and I'm thinking okay great we must be going back now we've been on the bike for a while and he says okay well, what we're going to do now is we're going to do some reps up and down this road so I want you to go really hard down this road and then you're going to go up to this point and you're going to do this and we're going to do that a few times and so like everyone went off and I like stayed at the back and then I was like I had to like really build up the courage to basically say, I don't think I can do this. Like the idea of saying that I couldn't do it, I just, I just found really, really hard. How many, how many times in your athletic career have you said, I can't do this? Probably none in like, there was, a, I don't think there was ever a situation where I thought that I, I physically couldn't do it. I think like there were situations obviously where I was finding it really difficult. And there was lots of situations where I was told that I shouldn't do it by a coach because like I was at risk of overtraining or I was injured and I shouldn't really be training. There was no, no situation where I, that I can remember where I said, I can't do this and, and gave up in that. Like, I felt like I was giving up and I felt like I was a failure. Um, and it was very difficult for me to like to not meet expectation um and he and he sort of turned around to me and was like 
oh, well, you'll be fine. Um, just carry on. Just go down there and see how the first one goes. <laughs> and I was like, that is like not what I like. That's not what I want to hear right now because like I'm – I'm like, so I was like, so struggling. And for me to even say that was like, I was well outside my comfort zone. So obviously I kind of sucked it up and did the first one, just still like battling with everything in my head. <laughs> and then we got to the end of the first one and then he was like, okay, so we're going to do the next one. And then just cleared off before I could do anything. And I was like, well, I don't know where I am. Like I'm in the middle of somewhere, like I had to do the next one. So I went and did the next one. And so I got to the end of the next one. And then like everyone went off and then I managed to get him again. I was like, I, I... You, you could have just like chilled. Yeah, I mean, you could have just. Well, I didn't know where. I, I, yeah, I wasn't pushing it. Like I definitely wasn't. I was like just trying to get through it. Yeah, I wasn't. I, I definitely wasn't like putting in any efforts or anything. I was just like trying mm-hmm. to stay alive and trying to stay on the bike and try not to panic too much. Um, so I got to the end of the next rep and then I was like, I, I really can't do this. I don't think I can. I, I don't think I can do any more. Like, and he was like, no, just do another. Just do another one. You'll be fine. So he made me do another one. And I was like, on that one, I was like, fuck this. Like, I'm absolutely done. Like, I'm absolutely panicking anyway. We got to the end of the next one. And I got him and I was like, which way back is it? Because I'm I'm going home. Like, I don't know where I am. I don't know how to get back. Like, it didn't have a map. It didn't have anything. And he was like, oh, well, if you go down here, then you can go that way and you can go home. And basically, he, like, directed me down, like, a massive A road, which was, like, looks pretty much like a motorway. So pretty much, like exited hit an a road and then ended up like cycling back in like you know and just feeling like so much shame for just not not being good enough not meeting standard and like you know bailing out of like a a session and I you know I didn't expect to have any problem with getting on back on the bike as well so it was just it was all very unexpected I mean ironically Cycling down an A road by myself was a lot less mentally stressful than cycling behind, I don't know, 12 teenagers cutting themselves up. Um, And I think, so I made the decision then that I was going to just take myself out every single day. I'm pretty sure I went out every single day on the bike by myself after that to readjust my sense of risk. But like that, that episode was like Mm. a holy shaming moment in my life. And um the other coach in that session on that day was was Tom Vickery and he he came up to me afterwards and said oh you know are you okay like you left the cycle ride and um and I was like well not really this happened to me and he was like oh wow I didn't know that um and um I think the the coach that did know that like you know now I look back on it and I think like how how was that an okay way to approach someone who'd had who'd been through what I'd been through and I just, mm. yeah, I just thought that was incredible. Um, but like quite funnily, Tom, uh, Tom's thoughts at the time was like, she must be an amazing running and runner and swimmer because her cycling is so awful. <laughs> like to get into this, cause it's like a junior elite squad to get into the squad. <laughs> the other two disciplines must be amazing because she is terrible at cycling. It's quite funny, but yeah, it was, that was a really, really really mentally challenging time like very very stressful and it like for for months and months after that would still like have trigger panic attacks and just stop crying on rides for like you know a car that overtook too close or overtook too fast or beeped its horn or or whatever like i would just out at random mm. stuff mm. um but yeah that took a long time to kind of calm down i just really didn't expect it to happen i think that's something i found to be very um difficult myself Mm. that 
the challenges that you recognize as challenges from the outset are in a lot of ways much easier to deal with because you're like, okay, you know, this is a challenge, you know, I'm accept, you know, I'm expecting it to be difficult. I'm ready to, you know, like not do as well at X mm-hmm. or Y or Z, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it, it's a challenge. But the things I found to be really difficult is the things that you don't expect to be a challenge or the things that have changed that you don't mm-hmm. realize have changed. And it takes you a long time to work that out. And in the meantime, you're just like, Christ, I'm just like, I'm just pretty rubbish at this, you know, like, why is it so difficult? Like, you know, why, why aren't I enjoying my life? You're like, maybe for me, it'd be like, when I was on the cycle ride from Bristol to Beijing, like, I was like, I felt like at times actually, I was sort of like, this is like mm. quite stressful. And it's because there was like so many different things going on of like, you know, planning the route and doing the cycling and different people joining at different points. And then the social media and then, you know, sponsor obligations and the, you know, you know, because I was like thinking, well, you know, I'm doing the cycle ride of my dreams. Like, why is this difficult? You know, like, why am I stressed? And it was this realization actually, well, actually, there's, you know, there's, there's actually a lot going on. This is legitimately tough. And like, actually that process of realization that there is a challenge that you hadn't even realized. I think that's such mm, an important one. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good, um, a good way of framing it actually. And I hadn't thought about it like that, but that makes complete sense, right? Like you can't, you can't plan for a surprise. And if you can't forecast it, then how can you prepare yourself? And yeah, it was, um, it was tricky. And there was, there was only one other time when I like, when I really hit rock bottom in that period of like recovery, which was when my, my theory of I'm just going to get too good. Um, so they can't ignore me, um, really bottomed out because they wouldn't actually let me enter races initially. Um, I really wanted to enter this race and my coach, who was the same coach who ignored me on that first ride when we went out, um, had told me that I was, um, I couldn't enter this race because I hadn't proven that I could cycle in a group and that I could swim in open water. And this was like two weeks out from this race. I never assumed that I couldn't enter this race. And so, uh, you know, mm. my response to you haven't, you haven't cycled in, um, in a group or swim in open water was, well, you haven't asked me to do that and you haven't made an effort to come and see me do either of those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I felt like, I felt like there was no way for me to, to continue and then um, sort of ended up like losing my shit a bit and kind of throwing some toys around and ended up um, managing to get into a position where they, they kind of had to at least make an attempt to see me do those two things. Um, and um, okay. after seeing me do those two things, I think it was very difficult for them to say that I couldn't enter the race. So um, the response that my coach gave was like, well, I'm not going to stop you. And this is literally five days out of the race. Well, I'm not going to stop you from doing it, but um, if you, but I don't advise it or something like that, or I don't think it's a good idea um, because I think, you know, mm-hmm. you're going to get psychologically battered. Um, you know, I'd done two triathlons. I'd done like two triathlons. Both of them were sprints. Um, the other difference with this triathlon was that it was a European cup race. So it was an elite international race you know in my head I was a bit like well you know if I get around the swim and I'm not out of the race then that's success um I think was the way in which I was approaching it and did it just when you when your coach told you that you couldn't do this race and okay and then it's like well you know I advise against it given the fact that you'd put yeah this rejection letter essentially on your wall was that a help or a hindrance do you think it sounds like it was a challenge but like how did how did you actually respond to it um so in the moment when I was told I couldn't do it um because my coach hadn't approved it um I was just like 
I can't believe that the person that's getting in the way of what I want to do is my own coach, my own coach. This was not like this coach was allocated to me by British Triathlon. Um, so I was like, well, I haven't heard from my coach. Mm. Like, my coach hasn't done any coaching. So how, how does my coach know? And then I was like, you know, I think my first reaction to that was like, well, surely my coach is just going to get out of the way because they're not involved. Um, and then when they weren't, when they didn't get out of the way, then I knew I had a problem. Mm. Um, and that's when like, I felt very helpless. I felt like the whole situation was out of my hands and that I was, I realized that I'd become quite political, mm. um, in like my situation had made me quite a political, um, person because I'd been removed from a program because of something that had happened on the program, which was, which I assigned no blame to anyone for um and there was a risk that I might beat some people who'd been on the program in this race I guess um or that that story might come to light I guess was the other risk um and so um I think I think I inadvertently became a bit of a political issue and I think yeah it was just really hard for me because all I wanted to do was race and and at that moment I felt like it was out of my hands um but fortunately Fortunately, I just ignored everything that he said and cracked on with the race, which was no like small feat in itself. Like it was an international race and then um, ended up finishing fourth. I think I won three grand for finishing fourth. Wow. Yeah, it was it was an insane. It was an insane, insane experience. Like I remember finishing and like one of the sponsors that supported me was like, oh, this is this is incredible. This is amazing. And. I couldn't even believe I'd finished. It was like so painful. It was like ridiculously hot. I'd never really done a proper triathlon before. It was, it was a massive achievement just to get to the end really. And I went to visit my coach afterwards and I was like, you know, well, what did you think? And he said, oh, it was just as bad as I thought it would be, except for the weather was hotter. (laughs) I was like, amazing. Yeah. What, what a positive view on life. Oh my goodness. Um, Right. So it sounds like I had this big accident in the space of six months, despite facing setbacks, you've been pretty blocked out everything else, it sounds like, to, to achieve this goal, you know, of competing for GB. It sounds like you're all set to go on and dominate British triathlon. Yeah, I mean, I think I had pretty positive aspirations, actually, after that race, too. I was, you know, excited about the next few months. But, like, that was all a bit of a mirage, I think. I, um... I was really struggling. Like even getting out of bed was absolute agony. Like I still had a broken collarbone. I had metal work in my back, which meant that like movement was a challenge and I would get ridiculous back spasms. I I was living with um, some of the triathletes that you've met, I think. um, And they would kind of stand on my back and like give me these super aggressive massages just so that I could train. But I just, I think basically what happened over the course of the rest of that season was that I was like, training was really really like physically painful as well as mentally challenging and mm. what what I found really difficult and I think the kind of breaking point for me in that season was I went on a training camp with non and several other triathletes um, and a group from Cambridge as well and um, like they would train every day and I just couldn't like my back would spasm too much and I think I probably only trained about a, a third or a, a half as much as they did and mentally mm. that absolutely hammered me um just like mm. even like people who in training I was beating they beat me in in like they beat me in a race in Geneva <clears throat> and it was just like I think what I couldn't get my head around and this was <clears throat> I think in like flew in the face of everything that I'd done in like 
the rest of the way in which I prepared myself to race. Like, I felt like I hadn't prepared as much as I could have. I felt like I didn't deserve to be there because mm. I hadn't done the training. And I think, like, mentally, I couldn't really handle that. Um, and so I didn't, I really underperformed um, in most of the rest of the races. And, like, my mentally, I was really struggling to, like, I think, like, manage the pain and know that everyone else on that start line had trained properly for the race and that I hadn't. And that was when I made the decision to have the metal work taken out of my back and to have my um, my collarbone fixed and to go back to uni. Well, I sort of knew that I was going to go back to uni anyway, but um, <clears throat> I decided to have those two pieces of surgery at the end of the season um, before I started university again or finished university again. But yeah, I, I think I think this was the kind of beginning of the end of my um, like my I guess my desire to compete. Um, because what happened was at the end of the season, I basically, um, I had double surgery. So I had my, um, collarbone surgery first and then I had spinal surgery and then I went straight back to uni the following week. And so I basically, you know, over the previous nine months, pretty much built from, you know, getting run over back to almost, you know, international, like low level international racing. Um, Mm -hmm. and now here I was at zero again like I'm back I'm back on the operating table and back like not right. being able to walk like you know not being able to go to the toilet myself and um and climbing back up that I, it was it was just so difficult like and I you know I reflected on that season I thought you know what like in the space of six months I kind of was competing with a lot of people who hadn't got run over and was beating quite a few of them who were on the scene and mm. and I just thought you know what like there's a real chance here that if I continue to train as hard as I have done, I will be in the mix here. Um, whether I win or not, I think is a different story. And I think like, you know, that top few percent, like being able to actually pull off a a win is, um, is a different story. And, you know, I reflected on what my life was over that nine months and it was basically training from dusk till dawn. And I, I really questioned whether I loved it enough. Like it felt like a real opportunity cost to spend that much more of my life doing that. Um, and I think that was the beginning of the end, really. I think I lost that curiosity. I felt, I felt like I, I kind of got to the point, I guess, where I'd answered my own questions about how good I could get. And it felt like if I really, like there was a difference then between like, all I had to do was prove it. And I'm saying all I had to do, obviously there's a huge difference between like being like having the potential to do it and actually doing it. But like there was a real opportunity cost there, which I couldn't get my head around. I think. Yeah. Um, the idea of like, I'd obviously missed 2012 and, and like I was having these thoughts were going around in my head in 2010. Mm. So I had another two years for 2012 and then I would really be looking at Rio. So I had six years of this ahead of me if I wanted to go and get a medal in triathlon. Yeah. And I just, didn't think it was worth it and I think that was kind of hammered home by like learning that the air ambulance was a charity and that people had donated money to save my life and I wouldn't be here if people hadn't done that Mm. and um you know I just felt like given what I'd been through I felt quite selfish as an athlete Mm -hmm. I felt like you know who was I really contributing to who really gives a shit if I win an Olympic medal like at the end of the day it's just an arbitrary distance that someone made up and there's someone's going to win it. Like, does it matter if it's me? Like, who who really benefits from that? Mm, I think, mm. and those were the bits that I struggled to reconcile. I think I wanted to to make a bigger impact. I think. Okay, so it also sounds like a little bit of the um, completion 
or uh, yeah, towards the end of the journey of Charlotte Roach, who, you know, did swimming, running, triathlon, because it was there in front of her and because, you know, you have, I mean, by all accounts, like amazing at it, um, rather than it's something that you, at, it seems like at times you love parts of it, but it sort of also was not necessarily you ever loved all of it. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. I think, you know, I think it was the, I think I started to recognize around that time that actually the process wasn't that enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and like kind of funnily enough, I'm sort of coming out the other side of that now. And like, I'm loving running more than anything. Um, and the same with cycling, like I'm really getting like a whole lot more joy out of it Mm. than I ever got Mm. when I was training. Um, and I, I'm really trying hard not to lose that. And it's very tempting to, you know, fall into a world of park runs and racing Lucy Gossage at the weekend just for the sake of it. <laughs> um, but I don't like, I'm just loving wanting to go out in the morning and enjoying going for a run and yeah. running as far as I want, not what my training plan mm. says. And so you, you said, you know, you kind of thought to yourself, well, you know, Rio trying to medal there, that's not... Um, that's not that rewarding, you know, that's not something you'd find that rewarding. So where did you go next? Yeah. Um, so I finished my degree, um, and it it was quite a big mental process to like, to make, to make this decision. I think like, obviously a lot of people had invested time in, you know, coaching me and mentoring me and Mm. helping me at various stages. And I was like inordinately grateful for that. Um, and, um, I think I was very much defined as an athlete. Everyone who I knew knew me as an athlete. Certainly, like the entire time that I'd been at Cambridge, like I was viewed as a very good athlete. Like there was no like me, like no one really knew me when I was when I was very average. Um, so this idea that I wasn't running, wasn't around, like it was quite difficult. Like I didn't, yeah, I didn't really have a world outside of it. I guess, and it was very much like attached to my identity. So it was quite difficult to. I guess like declare that that was what was what I was doing like or that I was kind of like not that bothered or not like sort of I needed some space um and so I um I did that insane bike ride from Beijing to London to raise money for for the air ambulance and I guess that was for a few reasons one because you know I never really did find out in the real world how my fitness translated like I, I did in this like bubble of sport which is like you know everyone races over a tiny distance but like how like you know let's use that to 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 see some places and to do some things and like see the world and um I think the other thing was I really did want to raise at least enough money to save someone else's life for the air ambulance and I really didn't want to ask people for money so I thought okay well let's do something ridiculous and maybe people will just want to give a bit of cash yeah um I should say what an amazing idea it is to um to cycle from um from from Beijing to London (laughs) Yeah, I think I think anyone who you know decides to cycle from the UK to specifically Beijing um, is is a very very good person. <laughs> yeah, how much do I need to pay That's you? Great idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think the other the other method that it served it was like it was a physical challenge, so it fitted in with like my brand of like being athletic, but it wasn't you know rigid specific training as, and so it kind of. It was like, I, can, I think it was kind of helpful step to like sort of continue training in the sense that I was cycling every single day, um, mm. but I wasn't like racing. I think it was a good like transition out of um, competitive sport, I think. Yeah. And so tell us like, uh, we, we've discussed in at some length of your, um, 
your athletic background and you know achievements and the challenge you know of coming back from your accident tell us how you came up with rabble tell us about what rabble is first of all uh yeah so basically rabble is a um a fitness company that thinks exercise is boring um exercise is just movement and mm-hmm. there are loads of ways of moving so why get really repetitive and really tedious mm-hmm. i think uh, the fitness industry is weird it's really weird um and it's built around aesthetics which i find pretty shameful um mm-hmm. the sports industry is obviously also um engaged in this whole exercise world but um it's more focused around performance mm-hmm. and so there's not a lot of inspiration around for people who are not um, super keen to be supermodels or have enormous biceps or who don't want to win an Olympic medal. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it's that idea of like just exercising for, for the fun of it and taking the best from the sport and the fitness industry. So we um, focus on health rather than on like aesthetics or on performance. The idea is that you come, um, you meet some people, you have a great time, but you also get a workout. So we achieve your fitness goals. And the other idea is that um, anyone can participate. So how that kind of actually plays out is that you'll you'll come to a session as if it was a, a boot camp or something, but we'll split you into two teams and then you'll play a series of different games over the hour. So that could be anything from like dodgeball to catch the flag to British Bulldogs, the Hunger Games and, and pretty much anything or any other random game that you can think of. We'll, we'll probably have played it at some point. And do you, um, it sounds like this is quite in a way, a counterpart to, say, park runs and stuff. How do you see yourself relative to park run, which is, of course, you know, also trying to be inclusive and make exercise open to everyone? Yeah, so I think, I mean, park run obviously does an an amazing job and and it's great the number of people that are able to engage. It's fantastic. They're able to operate it for free as well, which is is brilliant. I think it's very difficult to... um, to really appeal to the masses if you're going to time them over 5k every week mm-hmm. i think like i don't know how you feel about it and I, I don't know but i think getting ranked um every week and told exactly what your time is over 5k is um is a sustainable way of engaging in exercise i think it's um and it depends how seriously you take your time and all the rest of it i mean if you genuinely like running around the same course every week i think great and obviously if you've got friends there even better and if you are doing 5k every week then that's great but I do think for a lot of people that's quite difficult to you know not feel like you're not making progress anymore if your time start to plateau or you know particularly if you do start pushing yourself really hard to try to better your time every week knowing that you're going to go through that pain every Saturday morning mm. does make it a bit of a barrier to go out and I think that's one of the kind of great things about rabble which is that it's such a low barrier to joining. Like, you know that you're going to go there and you're going to play a few games and you're going to have a great time. Mm. Um, you don't know what the game's going to be. You don't know who's going to be there, but you know that it's going to be sociable and enjoyable. And mm. I think that's, it's a much easier sell than we're going to time you over 5K. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can see that as, you know, being a lot, um, it's more inviting in, in a sense. Um, though I do feel I have to push back and say, you know, on the, on the park run and say, I think a lot of people might find it very motivating to, see that time and and see it drop uh week on week and you're know, giving them something to to focus towards and you know it doesn't it, it sort of doesn't matter in my opinion you know with your with park run if you know you're you're hitting an hour 40 minutes 20 minutes 15 minutes you know it's um it's seeing that progression which can be very motivating but i also definitely get the you know if you get obsessed by beating your time uh then it becomes yeah. a slugfest with your own body and that is painful 
Yeah, I think it's it's a double edged sword. I think I don't think it's possible to um, to enjoy seeing your time drop and not get obsessed about what time you've run. Hmm. Um, and so I think like that's and and again like that's absolutely fine. Like and mentally you'll probably find that absolutely fine whilst your um, you know whilst your time is is dropping and you're improving, but you will hit a plateau. It's just not possible to keep improving at that rate. Hmm. And mm. so it, the question is like, and I, I would love to, you know, see how this plays out in actual reality. But like when you hit that plateau, what happens to your engagement in the park run? And I, I suspect that potentially stops becoming something that's quite enjoyable and starts becoming something which is a bit of a like a bit of a chore. And But I mean, having said that, um, you know, park run is amazing. Like there are an incredible variety of people that go every week and the community spirit around it is amazing. And I think it's great to see so many people back in the park and like with such an easy entry to running. So not to detract in any way from, from what they're doing. I just, as someone who's very much been on that treadmill of like, okay, you know, one of the things I used to really try to avoid is um, like timed runs, like over a specific course, just for the like mental hammering that it gives you mm, mm. of like, am I up to standard? Am I on form or am I below form? Am I better than form? Mm. And you can never always be better than form. Um, and there's lots of reasons why you're going to be below time. But I think it's just the way, I guess, the way in which you approach mm. that, I suppose. I think it'd be really interesting to hear from um, anyone who's listening and, you know, has a thought on, you know, uh, you know what park run means to them. Uh, if you want to like drop us a comment or a message, then it'd be really interesting to hear what what you guys think as well. Tell us about. Um, I was interesting with you know Ravel. You've mentioned some of the games, but does it give a full body workout? How much thought do you put into these exercises? You know, is it just running by a different name, or can I expect to get like a full body workout? Yeah. So. Um, so. Most of, as you can imagine, with my background, most of the workout is, is based around running. Mm. Like, essentially, a lot of the exercise that we do is interval training in disguise. So we'll essentially try to get people to work at a very high intensity mm-hmm. and then control the recovery. Mm-hmm. And um, we incentivize the number of intervals that people do it by usually point scoring that in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we do have other games which are more strength-based, and we tend to use those strength-based games indoors when the space is a bit smaller. And we do have a version of Rabble called Rabble X, which I think someone like you would love, Luke, um, which is right. absolutely savage, I assure you. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I yeah, <laughs> also, love savage. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, we just like cut the recovery right down, basically. So um, nice. you'll, um, rather than like, you know, normally what will happen is we'll explain, explain the rules to a game, like let's say capture the flag, you'll play capture the flag for a bit, and then we'll bring you back over and we'll introduce a new rule to the capture the flag. So yeah. it might be. Um, this flag is worth double points or whatever it is. Mm. Um, And obviously every time you do that, that's a recovery time Mm. and that time needs to be quite carefully controlled. Mm. In um, Rabble X, we'll just eliminate that. (laughs) Just uh, We'll call you over, you'll do 20 press-ups, we'll tell you the new rule during the 20 press-ups and you'll run straight back into position. And if you're slow doing your 20 press-ups, then you've probably had a few flags stolen already. So it's... Yeah, we just try to make sure that we align incentives in the session with um, with workout. So it is really competitive. You will absolutely smash yourself. <laughs> um, so just tell us, that's a bit about what Rabble is, but like, where did Rabble come from? Where did the idea come from? And I have a feeling it must have come from your own athletic experiences to an extent. But w- how did you come up with the idea? Uh, yeah, I think it came from... Um, I think it's born out of my frustration for 
like wanting to play like you know as an athlete you have quite a structured training program you have to follow that pretty prescriptively mm-hmm. um i think once i was injured um i had a bit more flexibility and i had pretty little guidelines or guidance in terms of what kind of activities i was doing and i managed to design a lot of workouts which were really challenging but quite enjoyable mm. um and quite varied in nature um and um and still kept me very very fit and i think sort of i think mentally i'm like always looking for to try to find the fun in things and i think having had that experience of designing workouts for people who were injured whilst at uni including myself and trying to make them as interesting as possible i think that kind of fed into it and then this kind of suppressed netballer i'm going to say netballer not really a netballer but like you know the person who wanted to play netball but actually had to go swimming and after school mm. um kind of came out as well and just thought it's probably loads of other people who well there are loads of people who play sport at university or at school and then have to give it up because it doesn't fit with work or and I think there are lots of people who would play more more games if if it was more readily available and is there in me there feels like there's something like if if it's too fun like I'm how can I get a workout if I'm just playing a game right like you know playing bulldogs that's not a workout like you know how am I going to get fit doing that it might be fun how do you is is that some kind of opposition you felt or you've um or you've experienced in the past um I definitely haven't felt it but certainly that is a very from people who are quite serious so um from people who have a specific exercise goal Mm. um there is a mislaid perception that you can't have fun doing a workout otherwise you're not achieving your workout goals Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but i can assure you that you can um you can get a lot lot faster if you're a runner and you're doing traditional running training um rabble is essentially um high intensity like it's basically sprints um sprint training pretty much Mm. Um, obviously depends on how big you make the pitch and and whatever else but I can assure you that it's very very good speed work Um, we've had people who've come to rabble not as runners who've gone on to run 10k without a problem Mm -hmm. Um, so I think um, I think it's a mislaid misconception and I think it comes from this like it comes from the image of exercise having to be painful and if it's not painful you're doing it wrong I would um, I wouldn't say like rabble there are like moments in rebel that are painful but you're focused on winning the game and not on like you know you're focused on trying to get that last point for your team not like you know counting down the seconds until your reps finished yeah so i think it's just a change in mindset rather than the load that you're putting on your body is not different it's just a mindset change do you need to be competitive then i think everyone's competitive um like people say that they're not but everyone ultimately is competitive and i think it's just the way in which it comes out um I think in order to genuinely engage with competition I think you have to feel like you're successful and that you're in like I think you have to feel like you could you could be successful at it um and we create that opportunity at Rabble for everyone to contribute to the team the team's success basically and if I'm someone listening and this isn't actually like a kind of PR plug for Rabble but I am sort of just interested um (laughs) And it, cause it yeah. does seem to sort of, I don't know, it fits with a lot of my own personal f- philosophy of like exercise is something that I think any, like everyone and anyone would benefit from doing, but I think it's so important that it's done on each person's own terms in a way that, um, works for them. And that's why for some people park run is great, but for others, it's not at all. And it's interesting that Ravel could be something that, that works for some people. I can imagine that if I 
you know, let's say I'm in the position of like, on one hand, I might want to start doing couch to 5k. On the other hand, I hear of this like thing called rabble that's been led by this absolute nutter called uh, Charlotte Roach. Yeah. Um, and I use the word nutter in the sort of most affectionate way. That's fine. I think nutter's accurate. Okay. <laughs> Peanut, almond, walnut? Um, big fan of almond, actually. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, <laughs> but so if, if, if you're, you know, I, I'd kind of be worried that, you know, there'd be, that I wouldn't be able to contribute to my team's success. You said success is important. How, you know, if, if you're not necessarily that fit at that when you first turn up, why shouldn't you be worried? <laughs> I think that's a super, that's a very, very normal human fear. I think like, um, when I, um, I mean, even I have that fear, right? I joined a sports club, um, when I got back from my cycle trip and, um, I thought I wasn't going to be good enough to join because I didn't really know the rules. And I was like a former international athlete. So at what level do you stop worrying about that? I think everyone worries, are they going to be good enough? Um, and, and I think that's unfortunate. And I think that's, um, that's a result of the way in which exercise is positioned when we're in school. Um, you know, when we're at primary school, maybe it's enjoyable and it's about play, but in secondary school, it's very much about who's going to make the school team and are you good enough at passing this ball and kicking the ball? Yeah. But I think the ethos at Rabble is not like, can you throw a ball well and how many points have you scored and is your team winning? It's very much, are you having a good time? Are you tired? And are you enjoying mm-hmm. it? Um, and are you, are you meeting some people? So we do design it so that it's not like, it's not an in, like it's not, um, we don't score everybody. Sometimes we don't even score the game. Like the game is just played for enjoyment rather than for, um, for points. And you can track the points if you want, or you can just run around and have fun. I've always, for me, uh, something that I found really um, a helpful way of thinking about my current performance or lack of ability um, and why it shouldn't sort of stop me is when I started like at my school gym, um, started going to the school gym and you know this was me when I was 16, like very skinny, really didn't fit in. I wanted to do well in rugby. Um, I never did. Uh, but... <laughs> I told myself, you know, there are these people, you know, like older boys who are like working out, they knew exactly what they're doing, huge weights, et cetera. Um, and that felt quite intimidating, but I told myself it didn't really matter where I was right now. It's where I wanted to get to and what I was prepared to do to get to that point. So it really yeah. um, gave me the license to not be like embarrassed by my current like weakness. And I, maybe that's kind of, it, it was an attitude that helped me at least. I think it's, I think that's a good point. I think it's, um, you know, it's very easy to just assume that, you know, that there is no journey that people go on and that everyone's current state is the state that they've always been in, but you don't know where people have come from. Um, I'd also say that like, it doesn't really matter. Like you might not even be aspiring to go on any journey or to change in any particular way. Um, provided you're actually enjoying the activity that you're doing, there's no need to really compare yourself to anybody else. Mm. Um, whether that's being the best or being the worst, it, it doesn't matter where you fall. It's like, if you're physically enjoying what you're doing, then it sounds like you're in the right place. And if you're not enjoying it, then potentially it's not. Yeah, try something else. Lots of different ways of being active. Indeed, indeed. And maybe to as a sort of, to, to finish, you know, this is, um, we're in a time of, you know, COVID, um, rabble happens in, in parks, you know, is, is all about physical interaction and bulldogs is kind of quite physical and touchy feely. Um, yeah. It must have been a really big challenge for you and your business, you know, and it's it's been a very successful 
uh, business um, up, up to this point, and you founded it, I think it's worth just sort of, you know, stress that, but you know, this, this is your baby. How have the last like two months been? Yeah, it's, um, I think it very quickly became obvious that it was going to be a real issue for us. Um, and, um, you know, I think you like, there's literally no precedent for this ever happening. You know, we'd never at any other point other than in 2020 thought there might be a point in our, in our lifetime, our business lifetime where we would have zero income. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, we hit that point in a week. Like we went from, you know, things being normal and operating as usual to no income whatsoever. Wow. And okay. I think um, we're very much on the front line of this. Um, you know, as a small business, we, we live like relatively hand to mouth. So it doesn't leave you in a particularly strong position. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to, you know, cut our team down to its absolute core, which was which is never a nice thing to have to do. Um, we had to furlough everyone um, <laughs> and we have to continually plan and replan and plan and plan and plan about, you know, what are our options at this point? Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much uncertainty that still exists. Okay. Well, looks like, you know, the furlough scheme might be extended, but you know, ha- will, that, will we be able to generate any revenue when that is lifted? Mm. And um, if, if so, you know, what's going to be the appetite of people to be back out in contact with other people and, you know, what arrangements can be in place for them to travel to those activities mm-hmm. safely? And, uh, you know, what's the financial status of, of people going to be? Are they going to be still able to invest in, you know, things like leisure and fitness? And mm-hmm. I think it's just it's just a time which is full of uncertainty. And I think that manifests itself in many ways. But um I guess it, you know, it's a classic example in, um, and I'm sure there's lots of people feeling, feeling the pain of, you know, having a plan and that being ripped up and thrown out, out of the window. And, Mm. you know, you're living proof of this as well, right? You know, you're in, were you in Germany and then? Yeah. Um, though interestingly, I found that COVID, the, the coronavirus is actually quite easy to, to accept as, you know, like this is happening. I've got to stop the, the cycle ride. Um, what's been fun, more difficult is the uncertainty of it i'm not sure i'm ever going to know or it's ever going to be clear or certainly not in say the next two to five years of like when would be an appropriate time to restart the ride i thought you know Mm. know, restrictions will just lift but obviously that's not going to be the case like they are going to gradually lift in different countries at different times with different you know associated you know self-isolation regimes or whatever it might be um i was Wondering, you know, how do you deal with this uncertainty in in your life with Rabble, you know, with the future mm. of this business, but also then your employees and um... yeah, um, it's really difficult. I think, like on on many different levels, on like my own level, on Rabble's level, on level of all our stakeholders, whether that's like investors or um, participants, instructors, um, and I think. Um, it's like, I think the most helpful thing you can do is like work out what the best and worst case scenarios are at any point. Hmm. And then you know that you're going to fall somewhere in that line mm-hmm. and provided you can manage the worst case scenario. Mm. And I mean, realistically for us, that's like, we don't survive, mm. which is a business is, um, is a situation that an awful lot of businesses are, are facing. And, you know, our ability to survive really depends on when when we're able to get back playing safely again and what people's appetite and belief in it being safe again is um 
and you know whether we'll have a second wave of it or not um mm. and i think that if you're if you can get comfortable with the worst case scenario then you can stop worrying about it or at least you can start to prepare yourself for it which maybe comes back to that point that we touched earlier on about you know surprise being the thing that kind of sets you back hardest that thing that you hadn't mentally prepared yourself for. yes yeah i think as well it kind of sounds like you know plan this is sort of a, something i've had in my own mind when dealing with the uncertainty that i've had to face of sort of um kind of plan for the worst expect the worst but hope for the best if that kind of makes yeah. sense kind of be ready for things yeah. to be about as shit as they could be but like and anything on top of that is, is is a bonus but also like not to lose sight of like dreams I suppose yeah and I think that's that's a difficult ju- juggling act to have mm. but I think that is definitely the way to live positively mm. I think then you know everything that you experience is pretty much a bonus and if it's not it's as expected mm. Um, but it, it can be difficult from that position to reach dreams, I think. Um, but, but yeah, at least, you know, you're in a positive mind frame and you can, yeah, you're not, you're not always, you know, I think, I think it, like where, where you typically see people really struggling is where they had a pretty certain belief that something was going to happen in a particular way and it just mm. didn't happen like that. And I think mm. that's one of the most difficult things that you, you see people tra- um, dealing with. And, um, and often those situations wouldn't be so bad if it was a positive surprise rather than a negative surprise. So given that there's no way you're really going to forecast it, provided you can forecast the worst and best case scenarios, then if you can prepare for the worst and happy times. Yes. I think what's difficult about that is you prepare for the worst, but then if you, if the worst turns out to be not actually, you know, worse than you expected, um, for whatever reason you thought you'd pre- prepared the worst case scenario. Um, but it's, yeah. Um, yeah, that would be pretty bad. Yeah. But I mean, that's also maybe not, not as bad as not preparing for the worst. Presumably you're in a similar <laughs> kind of, at least you've done some preparation, right? Versus it just being a complete surprise and left fielding you. That That's a good point. Yeah. I feel it's yeah. quite a, um, it's quite a somber note to sort of finish on and, um, <laughs> Can you tell? Yeah, I mean, what are, what are your plans now? What are you? What are your like? Obviously, you know, you were going to do the ride. Potentially, that's an option. What are you thinking mm. that you're going to go on to do from here? It, it's a great question. I mean, um, you know, the cop out answer is uh, talk to interesting <laughs> people like you um, and uh, produce a <laughs> podcast called Facing Up. Um, I'm. It's a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> glad you think so. Um, it's a, it's a really difficult one. I think that's a you know the, the short answer. It's another cop out um, because it, it, it's this uncertainty over time scales. Um, I mean, right now I'm actually sort of looking for testing the water in pieces of work that I feel re- really passionate about um, that I think are really really could be really impactful, um, and also doing trying to use this time to work out what the cycle ride is about and what it's for and to also you know in the hope that it does restart be well prepared for that and to make the most of that opportunity when it does come along but equally Mm. you know there's this duality that I accept that it might not come or it might not come in the Mm. form that I expected it to Um, but that doesn't mean the work shouldn't be put into capitalizing that opportunity when it does come from uh, when it does come yeah yeah Tell us one yeah, thing exactly. that you've enjoyed doing since um, that that COVID nineteen has allowed you to do. Um, so um, I think I think the thing I've enjoyed the most since COVID has kicked in is just like 
I've really, really enjoyed running. Mm-hmm. I've found so many new paths mm-hmm. and trails. Like um, normally I'm based in London, but I'm currently in the Northwest. And so um, not running amongst buildings, cars and um, other commuters and running instead amongst like fields, trees and birds has been like a real, like a real joy. Mm. and something to look forward to every day. And I think what I think lots of people discovered that joy during mm. COVID actually as well. A lot of people who you wouldn't normally who wouldn't normally commit themselves to a daily exercise per day. I think there's lots of people who've really, you know, almost kind of um, treasured that in a way that they haven't before and valued mm. it. Um, and I think that's a really really positive outcome from from this situation. Yeah. Again, back on this theme of you don't realise what you've got until until it's gone. Yeah. Um, of not being able to go outside it's interesting reverse psychology around um incentivizing people to do things <laughs> by telling them that they can't can't. yeah it sounds like that's something that's played a role in your own life with with triathlon and you know, i guess perhaps also with other things that you've maybe that's a theme throughout your life things that you've been told that you can't do you've it sounds like you've been someone to has really given you fire to to do them and it feels like you've come like a, a something of a circle in that you're now back running, but for the pleasure of it, which in, in some ways sounds like um, you've not had that luxury or ability, that space to discover running, the, the joy of running for the sake of running itself. Charlotte, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time. I'll be putting a link in the description of Rabble if anyone is interested um, or in, enticed um, to see um, what they could throw themselves into. Um, and uh, hopefully after, you know, the, the lockdown ends. Um, thank you so much for your time and uh, for sharing your thoughts and your journey with us. I really appreciate it. No worries. And likewise, um best of luck with the podcast i'm already excited to listen to the other episodes thanks Luke. thanks and thank you for listening to my conversation with charlotte roach i really hope you enjoyed it i'm certainly it's going to certainly stick with me for a long time charlotte's immense tolerance for pain uh but also what she was able to achieve by being incredibly single-minded and determined and while she put her body through so much what she managed to achieve, I think, uh, was nothing short of remarkable. And then to take her significant sporting talents in a totally different direction and setting up rabble uh, shows, I think, a really uh, remarkable sense of self-awareness of not only being an elite athlete, but uh, being able to understand what it's like for those of us, the vast, vast majority who are not elite elite athletes um, and finding a way to make exercise uh, more enjoyable and removing some of the barriers from physical activity. The Facing Up podcast needs your help. I am really passionate about getting this podcast in front of as many people as possible because I really believe that by hearing the stories of people who have overcome great challenges, we can all live um, face up to challenges in our own lives that little bit better. So if you could share this podcast with your friends, your families, your colleagues, even your dog, that would be greatly appreciated. Till next week. Bye-bye.